We don't usually go this way to give application points. But that's very helpful. Thank you. I know. If you would open up to 1 Peter, we're going to venture back into our study in 1 Peter after our series in the digital age. I don't know if uh, you're like me, but whenever we have God doing something particular in our lives that we need to be paying attention to, and with the digital age, the Lord seems to heighten the degree, or I guess he heightens my awareness to things that are in my life, and so I feel like I'm more drowning in digitalness than ever. So thanks, Keith, for bringing that to my attention. The Lord's using it. Uh, but we, it's been a while since we've been in First Peter. Actually, July was the last time we were in First Peter. Uh, we were doing a lot of mind-blowing in the summer, the mind-blowing submission to authority, mind-blowing husbands, mind-blowing wives. Uh, because we had our minds blown, literally speaking, with the supernatural coming into our natural thoughts and giving us a new way of looking at life through salvation, through being born again in the life that Christ is and now is in us. Uh, this morning, we're picking up uh, in First Peter 3, verses 13 to 17. And as we're doing this, there's a pattern that we're going to go through. This is actually not uh, particularly new information in this letter that Peter's writing to the church. It's not new information because he's actually repeating himself. And uh, parents, you, you know this if, you have, uh, if you've journeyed with kids throughout the years into the teenage years. When, when kids are, are little, we have a particular patience with repeating ourselves. You know, don't go out on the street. There's a particular patience with that. We, we're going, don't touch the hot stove. We understand you're not getting this yet, so we need to repeat ourselves, uh, and we have a particular patience, but as, as kids get older, the, I think the patience level drops as the child gets older, because when, when you have the elementary years, then you're starting to have an expectation of, okay, I've said this about three, four thousand times. Um, can we remember? And you're, they're trying to plead with the child, can you please remember what we're talking about? Can you just stop? hemming and hawing that you have to do your chores. We've been over this. We, well, then you get to the teenage years and something happens. Because then all of a sudden you haven't done anything and your teenager comes to you and says, you never said that. And you're thinking, um, no, I said it just yesterday, but that was really at 12.15 in the morning, so it was really today that I said that. And your patience level seems to drop. But the challenge for parents is that as kids get into the teenage years, we have to be masterful enough and dependent upon the spirit enough to be able to say things in a different way. Because as teenagers are growing, we can probably remember back to when we were teenagers, uh, the little independence thing is moving. You're getting your own thoughts and having your own formulation of plans, and, and you're not wanting anything to interrupt that. And so you're wanting to protect your, your realm, your world. And so it's the, it's the responsibility of the parent to be able to discern how and when and with what, new, uh, with what nuance to bring to this time because we're repeating ourselves and we need to be okay as parents with repeating ourselves because God is okay with repeating himself to us. But in this passage, Peter's actually going to, he's taking on a father role and he's taking on a father role by repeating himself and the characteristics that we're going to look at draw out from these few verses we find all over this letter that Peter has written. 
And, it, and it's three components, basically. The first component is suffering. We find suffering in this book. In this letter that he's writing to the church, there's a reality of suffering that he's writing about, the fiery trials, uh, the suffering that happens to us, as we're going to look at today, even when we're trying to do good. There's a second component all throughout this book, and that is Christ himself. There's the reality of suffering, there's the reality of Christ. Himself in our lives, through us, and our responsibility to make sure that he is one ruling over us and also ruling through us to affect the world that we're in. And the third component, component is our conduct. And these three things happen all over this letter. Suffering, Christ, conduct. And they happen in these few verses that we're going to look at. But there, if I can jump ahead and steal from chapter 4, borrow, can't steal it. If you look at chapter 4, verse 19, I think this is a summation verse. It's a therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. Purpose statement. Here Peter is writing, uh, the last verse there, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator, Christ, while doing good. Conduct. Suffering Christ conduct. It's all, and we see it in chapter one. Got it in chapter two. Hear it again, chapter three. But the way Peter's doing it is he's adding nuances. He's adding things to catch our attention, to, be, to make us aware, to make us understanding of what it is, we're, the, the information that we're he, having repeated to us. So let's look at verse 13 of chapter three. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Lord, we, we have the expectation that you want to bring to life your word, your son in our hearts. God, we ask that this morning, we, we at the outset say, Lord, we need you. We in our own intellect can't figure out what you're saying to us. We need the illumination of your spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite you, please, please inhabit this meeting. May your power be felt. May it be real. May it be tangible for us. And may we be changed by the hearing of the preached word. Jesus, be exalted. Please do it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The first thing we'll look at that Peter's drawing out is that topic of suffering. And in verse 13, he asks a particular question, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? It's the implication that if, usually when people are out to do a good job, they're not going to suffer for it. But yet he introduces a concept that nuance, that even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, what's he talking about? Well, if you're... If you're Typically, zealous for doing what's good, you're not going to suffer harm. You're not going to suffer at all. And I, I think it, uh, it also lends, 
it lends the reality and the understanding that God is not out looking to make his, for his people to suffer. He's not looking to trip us up. He's not looking to make sure that we are suffering in our lives and, oh, there, oh you had three happy days in a row. We've got to find some suffering for you. That's not the posture of God. We find in 2 Chronicles 16.9 that the posture of God is this. Capture this. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God's looking to lend strong support, not suffering, but yet it could be, because he even says he doesn't, he doesn't leave suffering up to chance, but it could actually be God's will that we're suffering even when we're zealous for doing good. Now, I, I, there's a reality that when we when we're in the midst of suffering, and, and I think he introduces an undeserved suffering, so to speak, if our minds can uh, understand a little more that way, that we're not, you know, we know what it is to suffer the consequences of our own sin, of our own wrongdoing. We sin against somebody else, there's relational tension. We understand, okay, yeah, I messed up. It's suffering, it's awkward, that's on me. We, we can have, we, we understand that. But when we're suffering, when really we've done nothing wrong, in our own minds, our minds typically, our natural way of thinking is to go to, the, to the, the realm that God's repaying us for something. Maybe it's not something that we're thinking of right now. Maybe it's something 10 years ago, 15 years ago, or maybe just last year that God now is getting around to repaying because I think we go there because we do that. We might, uh, in certain situations in our lives when we uh, have been sinned against, we wait. We might not lash out there, but there's going to come a boiling point where we're going to say what we really wanted to say last year or three years ago. And since that's our natural way of doing things, we think naturally in this moment to where our minds kind of gravitate toward, I'm, I'm, God, you're punishing me. You're repaying me for something I've done in the past. And I think there is a way that we, we want to honor God's goodness. We want to cherish that, so we'd rather blame ourselves than and in a way, blame God. Job's friends were about this. Job was saying, God did this. Job's friends were saying, no, 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 no. He did it because you did it. He went on and on and on. No, 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 God did this. His friends are saying, you got, you got sin, man. You got to repent. God's holy and he's good and he's righteous. And, and if, you got, if you're being repaid, you're being repaid. And if you're being repaid, you did something wrong. You just need to figure out what it is. On and on and on in the whole discourse of Job saying, no, I, if I could stand before God, I, if somebody could go to him on my behalf. He's appealing for a, a mediator in that moment. And it's also, it's in times of, of especially in long seasons of suffering that uh, have not been brought on by our own sinful doing, that we begin to question the very characteristics of God that we find most comforting. His love, his sovereignty, his justice. We begin to question, are you loving where is your control? Because it just seems to be reeling out of control. There's a, a real effect of this in our hearts. And there's the categories, if I can just go through some categories, that we have uh, the opportunity to suffer for righteousness' sake when we've not done anything wrong to deserve the suffering. God allows these things to happen for his people. Uh, think of prolonged physical suffering and disease. Your mind goes weird places when you're suffering physically. How about emotional suffering, mental anguish, depression, and anxiety? Do we, do we, is depression a result of sinful doing? 
Some people in their minds can just go there. It's a weakness, but it's not the result of sin. What do we do with emotional suffering when it's gone on for a long time? We've been praying, physical suffering, been praying. God, are you there? Are you listening? Why are you silent? There's the suffering of tragedy, that unexpected loss, where we begin to question, how, how can a loving God allow this to take place? How can a God who's in control want this? How about prolonged singleness? When you just think, is there ever going to be a companion for me? God, are you loving? What's up? Financial suffering, where you're... You are tithing and you are honoring God with your finances and you're still trying to figure out okay, what, where, how are we going to buy that? How we, we need food for this? And I want to tithe. I want to be faithful of that. But God, how about when it goes on for years and you're feeling that strain? Our, our minds go to, God, you got to be repaying me for something. you got to be punishing me or something. And sometimes that physical or financial, rather, financial suffering is tied to employment. Where in the workplace, you are zealous for doing what's right. You're the one in the office that is doing things above board, and you're the one being persecuted for it. You're the scapegoat. You're being held out. You're being held back from promotions because, God, I thought I was doing this the right way. What's going on? Why is this happening? Or, or sudden unemployment. And then prolonged unemployment. Child rearing is not the result of sin. <laughs> we, can, we need to take encouragement from that. God, <laughs> I have to be careful how I say this because this could, God may be repaying some of you because of how you are as a kid. I think for the most part, <laughs> the kids that we have are not the result of our own sinfulness and who we were to our parents, though it might be the case. But there's a suffering. There's a, a prolonged, Lord, are, are, are my kids getting it? Are they understanding the gospel? Are they, are they understanding you? There's a suffering component in that, and especially with wayward children. Wayward children and adults living their own lives, maybe, and they are, you are wondering and you are up at night and you are trying to figure out, Lord, will they ever come to you? Will they ever come back to you? Real moments of suffering. Now, here's the, the cool thing. As I go through that list, even as I was making that list this week, I can name in this church those of you who have suffered or are suffering in these very categories. And some of those people are coming to your minds right now. They came to your minds as I read through that list as we went through the considerations. What are all the categories of that? And I have testimony for all the people that I think of as we go through that. Testimony of unemployment. I remember Al Hilton going through a season of unemployment years ago and just had a joy and a faith about that. Donnie and Judy Bourgeois, who I heard Donnie a couple years ago say a statement I still can't comprehend. Donnie and 
Judy lost a son. They had to suffer through the tragedy of their son dying. And Donnie says, I'm thankful God took my son because it opened my eyes to Jesus. It doesn't make sense. Not in our natural mindset, but supernaturally. We, we have those that are have prolonged physical suffering. We've been praying for Linda Rockefeller, who we see, uh, I, I actually see, um, you know, Linda progressed real fast with ALS, but then it all of a sudden kind of slowed down. And I'm thankful that it did that. I think it's an answer to prayer because it keeps her around to encourage us longer. It keeps her around to suffer for righteousness' sake so we can have an example of, whoa, it's a holy lady in our midst. Craig Streichmiller, who joy. Cindy Hogan was facing cancer. Saw her the week after her surgery. And how are you doing, Cindy? I'm trusting God. That's not natural. Or Annette Loria facing uncertainty a second time. We, we are, we're on holy ground. And we should be taking lessons. And we are. I trust that. But in these categories, it could, I tell you, for me, when I see somebody else suffering, I can easily, I can go into the punishment, or, or not the punishment category, but the questioning of God's characteristics category. God, why? Did, why? If you're loving, why why are you letting that happen? Why is that occurring? What, what's up, God? What about your control over everything? How? Why don't you show up? And we've been praying, and we've been praying, and we've been praying, and God, why not? Could it be God's looking for something more to happen in us as well as through us? We're not being repaid. And then it's almost as if Peter's throwing salt on the wound, the, the wound when he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. We don't go there in our natural minds. Blessed, and then he doesn't leave, again, he doesn't leave it up to chance, he leaves it up to God's will in verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will for you. This is... This is a reality. There, there is a blessing if we're suffering for righteousness' sake. But how do we put these things together in our minds? Should we be looking to suffer things so we can have this aspect of our lives? God's not looking for his people to suffer. He's not looking to trip them up. But what's he going after in allowing his children to suffer for righteousness' sake? Tim Keller helps us with this, this thought. Uh, this, was, this is taken from a sermon that he did the Sunday after September 11th in 2001. And he said this, the Bible says, love God, love your neighbor. If I'm not doing that, he's mad at me. If I am doing that, he's pleased with me. I can't decide. I just lost my job, so he's mad at me. I was just in a car accident. I'm paralyzed. He must be mad at me. That's not how it works. 
Jesus did not suffer for us that we would not suffer, so that we would not suffer. He suffered so that when we suffer, it makes us like him. In suffering for righteousness' sake, we're actually suffering for the sake of the righteous one. We have the opportunity then to regard Christ as holy, Christ the Lord as holy, which takes us to our second point. Could it be that God in his majestic, supernatural wisdom and our own natural thinking, if we're not infused by the Holy Spirit, if we don't have Holy Spirit thought process as we're looking at suffering or experiencing suffering, we will scan and we will interpret things in vain. But if we have the Holy Spirit's thoughts, if we have that supernatural wisdom, it gives us a keen awareness that God, in his wisdom, Isaiah 55, his, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They're higher. They're broader. They're deeper. They encompass so much more than, than what our eyes can see. And could it be that his majestic supernatural wisdom, he's using, he's using suffering to conform us to the image of his son. We have the promise that those whom he calls, he predestines, he will conform to the image of his son. We just want to be free from suffering. But that's not following in the footsteps of Christ, is it? Christ suffered, then he went into glory. Our lives are very similar. But they're not, they're not repayment for sin. Jesus took the payment for our sin. We now have the opportunity to first sense something deep inside of us of what Christ went through for us. Because he suffered undeservedly, didn't he? And we also have the component, which we're going to get to in a minute, that we then are used to say something about what Jesus did to a world, to a, a dying world. But Peter lets us know, look at uh, the end of verse 14, that second sentence, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now Peter, when he's writing this, he's actually writing to people that when they got together like this, there was a, a real sense of physical fear. Roman centurions could come busting through the door and arrest everybody, break up families, and uh, for some of them, end up in a coliseum fighting a lion. That gave real significant meaning to coming together as the church in the first century. When he's writing this to these people who are enduring suffering and he's, he wants to encourage them as they're suffering, he says, don't be afraid of those centurions. But where we also understand is that fear is in all of us. Whether, they, whether they're fearing uh, somebody coming to force them out of a house, bring them to prison, separate families, or whether they were simply fearing, what about my family member who just berates me every time I bring up the gospel? What about, that was real for them as well. What about seeing all the... the Jewish friends that I had, I'm a Jew, and, but I'm not going to the synagogue. I'm meeting in this house, and there's real fears, but there's also real fears for us. We, too, have fear that's knocking at the door continually for us. Fear that squelches faith, makes faith this big, and fear huge. Fear that makes us feel that God is far from us or silent. Fear that communicates punishment. And Peter gives us a remedy 
for the fear. And here's the remedy. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Regard Christ the Lord as holy. Holy, that word there, being to set apart, to sanctify. He, he, I, I, this action is a deliberate act. It's a deliberate act of thinking of who Christ is, all that he encompasses. From before he came to the earth, while on the earth, his life, his death, his resurrection, now his exalted state in heaven, it's thinking of those things deep into our hearts. It's a powerful, powerful act. That, that's setting apart. It's when we take Christ from just the... When, it's so easy for our circumstances to squelch Christ. And that's where fear grows. Fear kind of gets this manipulation tactic on us. And so it's trying to convince us. Of course, we have the accuser always pointing at us saying, you're an idiot. God doesn't love you. You're not good enough. You don't perform enough. Those, that voice is always there. But greater is he who is in us. He who is in the world. So we have a promise that we have victory in that. But when we're facing the circumstances, the relationships in our lives, and we're suffering, and there's aspects of suffering in that, it's easy for us to kind of get Jesus just mixed into the crowd. And, and we start just kind of looking around for Jesus. And Jesus, don't you, aren't you with me? And, and where are you? And I just I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and where are you? Peter is saying, no, no, don't just make him part of the crowd. Exalt him. And when you exalt him, your eyes are looking upward. No longer around things that are occurring, that are pressing, that are so needy, calling for your attention. Peter is saying the remedy for fear is exalt Christ. He's also saying in the midst of suffering, exalt Christ. You can exalt Christ with the conscious, deliberate act of recalling the greatness, the majesty, the righteousness, the authority, the kingship of Jesus in our hearts. And this is an affectionate recall. This is not going through the list and just trying to get mind over matter stuff. Okay, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think. It's not what Peter's talking about. He's saying, no, this is an affectionate, from the heart, bringing up love and desire and hunger for God has a wonderful effect. It's this act of setting Christ apart. We're actually looking to, we're looking for him to be in our hearts what he already is in the heavens. And we see that example in Acts chapter 6 and 7 with uh, Stephen, who is uh, doing signs and wonders full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. He, he's refuting everybody that's coming by him, and he, they bring him before the council, and the council actually sees that he is glowing. Kind of like the Moses glowing, glowing in the Old Testament. There's a glowing happening where, where the, the leader of the council actually said that he, his face looked like that of an angel. God was, Christ was being exalted. And then he begins the discourse. They ask him to give reason. He gives a reason. And he begins the discourse in Acts chapter 7. And then he gets to the end of that discourse and they're furious. Absolutely furious. They're grinding their teeth. Y'all have done it to your kids, huh? That's what they were doing. They were so, they were trembling with anger. They were so aggravated with this man who gave them the truth. But we're going to find that he did it the way Peter was saying. Yeah, it was pointed. But he did it in a way that he then, he's, he's being stoned. He looks up. What does he see? Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. 
he saw the exalted Christ. And he was already exalted in his heart. So we have him exalted. We see the the evidence in his life. And then in the very final hour of his life, he sees the exalted Christ. There, There is a need for us, a requirement almost, to exalt Christ over and over and over again in our lives because we, we, we don't do it. And then needs and situations start to arise. Matthew Henry helps us understand what it means to sanctify the Lord. We sanctify the Lord in our hearts when we with sincerity and fervency adore him. Do you have a fervent adoration of Christ? When our thoughts of him are awful, meaning filled with awe, Awful and reverent when we rely upon his power, trust to his faithfulness, submit to his wisdom, imitate his holiness, and give him the glory due his most illustrious perfections. Yes, sanctify the Lord. And Matthew Henry is going to lead us to our next consideration. We sanctify God before others when our deportment is such as invites and encourages others to glorify and honor him. Both are required. He's saying, you sanctify Christ in your heart, others will notice. Jesus said that. John 12, 32, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to me. That's what we're doing in our hearts. We're exalting Christ, and as we, we exalt him, he uses, there's, a, there's the... The light that's going to shine, it's not being hidden, it's going to shine and it's going to have an effect of drawing people where people are going to begin to say, what's so different? Now you have some people that say, hey, what's so different? And you have other people that just hate you because you're so different. We have to expect both. The suffering we endure gives us opportunity to speak out Christ. To exalt Christ before others. And Peter says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And this hope that he describes at its essence is an expectation. So people who are suffering, the world is looking on. Those who are not in the faith, they're looking on and they're seeing an expectation. They're seeing a hope. How can you be enduring this? How can you be living through this and still have a smile? How can you still be living through this and you still haven't cursed your boss? How can you still be living through this and you're still tithing? The world takes notice, but there's a hope that's an expectation. And it's people who live with a hope of the expectation of a different future to their present circumstance. And this is not, this is not an expectation or a hope uh, to have relief of circumstances because we can have an expectation. I just, I, just one day, just hope this is over. And man, it's just going to be over and that's going to be great and... and that's not what God's going after. It's too, it's too short-sighted. And it's a disconnect with experiencing Christ in the midst of the suffering. Those who are called on to give a reason for the hope they live with are called on to exalt Christ in words. To describe the expectation of all that Christ is. The expectation of who he has been who he was as the Lamb of God, come to this earth as a baby, grew up in living a perfect life and suffering a death that was my death. It was your death. 
He suffered hell for me so I wouldn't have to suffer that hell. That's an expectation. That's a hope. We are, we are expecting, we're giving words to who Christ has been. We're giving words to who he is today. He saved me. It didn't make sense to me. I, I thought it was foolish, but he came and captured me in the midst of my need. And I said, yes, because of his grace. And then we're also, we're also giving reason in words for the expectation of his future return. Because you know what that means? Ultimate end of suffering. And that's what every person on this, on this earth wants. Because every person on this earth understands that if I'm not right with God, all I have to look forward to is suffering. And it keeps me up at night. And I don't know what to do with myself. And I can't stand it anymore. So I'm turning to every trinket and toy that I can. I'm turning to every substance that I can because I can't deal with what's going on in my brain that I'm going to suffer for the rest of my life. See, I, a lot of times people will say, this is, you know, the hell, uh, hell is what we're living it's hell. Hell is earth because everything is just broken and, and so wrong. And that's very incomplete. It would be better to say, yes, we experience aspects of hell. Just like as believers, we experience aspects of heaven. There are aspects of hell, those, flip, those, those flames that come up and lap at our heels. They are coming up. So when people say they're experiencing hell, yes, that's, that's somewhat accurate. What they're asking, what they're recognizing is, I don't, I don't want to face that when I die. Because I can't take it here. I know I can't take it there. We are called on to give an expectation that Jesus will come. And he will restore everything. He'll restore our bodies. He will restore our pleasures he will restore this earth. He will restore the heavens. And he will make everything new. That's what the world is looking for. That's what brings encouragement in our own souls. That's when faith will become sight. All suffering will end. But God in this moment as he's using us to speak to others. This is an interesting thought. We are a particular megaphone for God. And we find this in 1 Peter 2.9. That he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we would proclaim the excellencies of him. So there's a proclamation that God is using with our lives. But he also uses our mouths, uses our words. When someone says, why are you different? What is it about you? There's a megaphone that God's using. And he, he puts us up. And he's beginning to declare and proclaim himself. Now think about this. In Jesus' most intense hour of suffering, we find in Scripture that he said nothing. Turn to Isaiah 53. Look at two Scriptures quickly. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Can you sense the suffering that Jesus is experiencing? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now turn to Matthew 27. This is Jesus before Pilate. You may know, recall this account. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. You know who gets to answer now? We do. He's using us as his megaphone. See, because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.8, had, had he answered everybody, he wouldn't have been killed. But in the supernatural wisdom of God, he, he allows his people to play a part in his plan. He allows his people to play a part in the proclamation of his plan. And that's where we come in. He's using our lives, he's using our speech as a megaphone to proclaim and exalt Christ in the world. Where he was exalted in that suffering, we in our suffering have the opportunity to exalt Christ and, and, and he draws people to him. Amazing, amazing that he lets us participate in this way. But there's a preparation that we need to have. There's a preparation to the, the giving the reason for the hope. We need to understand, first, we need to understand the work of Christ, the person of Christ. We need to study Christ and be understanding of who he is and what he's done. And this, this preparation to give a defense is, is not, it's not so much an argument. People like to fine-tune arguments and corner others. It's not about that, though understanding and learning what people think and how they think, that's, those, those things are helpful, but they're not ultimate. You don't get another strategic tool and then, okay, we're going to convince the world now because we have this tool. We have a technique now that's going to convince the world. It's over. It's done. Just send us away. That's not what Peter's talking about. He said, no, there's a defense. There's a preparation. There's, there's a reason for those outside of the faith that you need to be ready to give a, a, an account for. And we have the promise or the promise of the Spirit. In Mark 13, 11, Jesus told his disciples, don't worry about the different words you're going to say. No, we need to have words. It doesn't mean, okay, no preparation. I'm just going to depend on the Holy Spirit. No, we're, we're exalting Christ. That is our preparation. And our preparation is also pointing out and recognizing God in the midst of our own lives as well as others. Peter did this. Peter, day of Pentecost. Here, 120 in the upper room. They have tongues of fire. They're speaking in languages they never learned before. And they come out of this upper room. And there's thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem. And they're all hearing the proclamation of God. They're all hearing the, the praise of God in their own language. When these guys came from all over the world at that point. How are these guys 
How, how, how can I understand them? What does Peter do? He stands up and he gives reason. He gives reason for the hope of what they're seeing. And he gives reason by exalting Christ. This is the same guy that wrote to us, be prepared. Be prepared to give a reason. And what he does, remember what he says? This is that that the prophet Joel told us about. That's what we do in preparation as well. We identify, we connect things. Oh God, this is what you're doing and this is how. So when somebody asks, we get to exalt Christ by seeing how God's at work and putting pieces together for us. Preparation is not shooting from the hip. I, I, I don't know if y'all like Top Shot on History Channel. I like Top Shot. And they had something this past week where they, for the elimination challenge, if you want to figure out what that is, come ask me later. But they had to shoot from the hip, Dirty Harry style. And these guys are experienced marksmen. And they look like little kids trying to shoot a gun from right here. You, know, you see Clint Eastwood, and the guy, and then just falls. Look, they have to hold it with two right here. And they're trying to shoot, and the bullets are going everywhere. Where was I, low or high? And the, the guy next to him, the expert, says, I don't know. I don't know where you were. I, I shoot another one. Maybe I could see that one. He's got binoculars on and everything. Not hitting the target. Took them a long time to try to figure out. Look, when we are giving an answer, it's not simply, oh, just kind of, you know, say whatever comes to mind. There's a preparation, and we're taking aim. Now, we're taking aim at Christ, not the person. <laughs> Too often in our evangelism, the object is the person, not Christ. We're not looking to convince you. And you can just see so you've had those moments where you talk and you said everything in the gospel. You were saying scriptures you didn't even know you knew. And it was just God in powerful ways. And it was you knew you're going to get saved right now. And the person just said, I don't know. You, how, how, this makes so much sense to me. How does it not make sense to you? Because it doesn't make sense to them. Because we find in Scripture that these things are spiritually appraised. You didn't figure it out because of your logic and your reason. You figured it out because God said, you get it. How do we get it? We exalt Christ. So before others, we're exalting Christ. He's drawing people to him. We're taking aim at Christ and his person and his work. Not shooting the person who's asking for the reason. <laughs> Which leads us to our third point in conduct. We have to give reason with gentleness and respect and a good conscience. Now, our conduct matters. Who we are matters. How we are matters. And this is... Peter's picking on manners with gentleness and respect because the opposite of those is to give a reason with harshness, demeaning the other person. And it's, it's, it's easy to slip into that. But I think there's two, there's two ends of the spectrum as we consider the gentleness and respect. The one end of the spectrum is people who are just way timid and they, they want to be too gentle and way too respectful where they don't share anything. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people that have no idea that they need to be gentle and respectful. Now, the person who needs to be gentle and respectful usually has no clue what they do to other people. They just think they're obeying God. What am I obeying God? That's what I'm doing. So here's, a, here's, here's two little things that I think may help us understand. Here's the harsh and demeaning test. The first one is this. If you shut down conversations, 
you are most probably being harsh and demeaning. You're not listening to the Holy Spirit. Well, I've said it like it was, and they went home, and now they're going to get saved now. <laughs> yeah, God gave me that word. No, I mean, I... <laughs> Frank works very diligently with the Alpha Table leaders to make sure they're not doing this at the tables, not giving the answer first, and then we just move on. But you got some guest that comes or somebody from the church that says, I mean, I, Jesus died for our sins. I mean, what else, what else is there? What? What? <laughs> I mean, that's it. What we got to talk about? You're kind of missing it there. Which, if you make people feel like an idiot, you're probably being harsh and demeaning. That's the second thing. If you shut down conversations or after the end of what you say, somebody can fill it in with, you idiot. <laughs> That's not what the Lord is wanting for us to be. I mean, this just makes so much sense to me, you idiot. I mean, he, he came and he lived a perfect life and you don't live perfectly, you idiot. we got to be careful. There was a few years ago, uh, helping out with the Next Generation Club at Carver High School, um, there was a freshman who was just, he was zealous for God. He came in, he had his Bible on the corner of his desk right here. He positioned it quite perfectly right there. And he's just right in the front. And he's looking at me like this. And I'm going through, of course, we're trying to stir up thought. And so I'm asking questions. And I'm asking questions. I don't get, I mean, this happened for like three weeks. I don't get two questions into it. He says, because Jesus died for our sins, we need to give him our life. <laughs> Don, you're exactly right. But I had a little more to say to lead up to that point. <laughs> I actually had to ask him. He didn't know what to do. I asked him, I said, look, I, you, you love God, and that's awesome. But you got to help me. Let me bring him to the point, And then I'll point to you, and you can say that. Can we do it that way? <laughs> Just let me talk. But he's like this. Because Jesus loves you and he died for you and you need to live your life for him. All right. Let's eat some pizza. That's how we do it. There's a manner at which we are to be conducting ourselves, but there's also a life that we're supposed to be conducting that backs up the gospel. If you were like me, watching the LSU game last night, and Mo, Mo Claiborne took that kickoff, 99 yards, score a touchdown, I always reserve excitement in that moment because I'm waiting for that little yellow thing, flag, <laughs> to pop up on the screen. Because you know how, oh, even when I'm at a game, I'm, somebody scored, I don't cheer yet, I'm looking for a flag. No flags, all right, yes, woo! Look, in a real sense, spiritually, our lives can't be a penalty when we're sharing the gospel. We've got to be able to have a life that puts an exclamation point on the gospel, not a penalty flag. Ralph Waldo Emerson, in a paper that he wrote on social aims, this is a, it was a paper on manners. He said this, what you are stands over you the while and thunders so that I cannot hear what you say to the contrary. Thunders, good word. 
a lady of my acquaintance said, I don't care so much for what they say as I do for what makes them say it. In our, in our culture, this is, very, this is written in the mid-1800s. And this helps me, in a way, understand, all right, because I, I can look at teenagers and all the digitalness that they're in. I mean, their thumbs move constantly. They're not even looking at their phones. And the thumbs are moving constantly, whether it's a video game or whether it's texting or something. The thumbs are just moving all the time. And I'm thinking, or can you hold a conversation? Because I'm finding they can't. But here, I read this. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote this to young people in the mid-1800s. And every application point, I said, man, teenagers need to hear this today. This is pretty good. A little light went off. There's nothing new under the sun. Oh, yeah. That's right. All right. Just got to keep on going. But here, listen. In our culture, people love to hear what's behind the words. Yeah, you say that, but what is it about you? And it's that, I mean, you hear a postmodernism in this. I don't care for what you say as much as I do for what makes you say it. I want to know who you are. Well, that, God uses that because, because that's what they're asking. I want to know who you are. Why are you joyful in the situation when you should be cursing? And he says, do it with a good conscience. A good conscience is a Christ-like living that's without regret or reproach, and it leads to an exalted Christ. No penalty flags. We have an impure conscience. An impure conscience leads to silence because we know we're just sinning too much, so we can't say anything about Jesus. It also should bring up the point that if nobody's asking about your hope, that should be an alarm to you. If nobody's asking, either you're not in enough proximity with the world, with the culture, or you're not living right. There's also the hypocritical conscience, where we compartmentalize our worldliness and our Christian walk, and we deceive ourselves into thinking that they don't come together, and they don't mesh, and they don't blend. And usually a hypocritical conscience comes out when you're sharing and giving a reason for the hope. It comes out as legalism. It comes out as, you just got to perform. You got to do what God wants you to do. And that's not what Christ is. The Pharisees were doing just this. They were putting more weight on others. They were putting an expectation of performance on others that they weren't putting on themselves. So they're expecting everybody that they're sharing with and giving the law to, you gotta, you got to obey this. But yet, Jesus says they don't even lift a finger in effort to do it themselves. Hypocritical conscience throwing the flag. Our conduct does matter. The megaphone that God uses is our speech backed by our actions, our conduct. We also see that we will be slandered. Verse 16, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, nobody's signing up for that. All right, what are you telling me here, Peter? It's just like Stephen, after he got to the end of the gospel discourse, he said, you're the one that did it. They didn't say, oh, okay, not like the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? They said, we hate you, and we're going to kill you now. You will be slandered, but look, still exalting Christ. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's not our responsibility to vindicate ourselves, justify ourselves. We need to exalt Christ. Let him do it. Let's stand up together if the band would come back up.
nobody can disqualify the hope that's in you. They might be able to pick on character, pick on things we've said and done, but the hope that's in us is never canceled out. God's power, he's powerful to the uttermost. He saves to the uttermost and he protects his word. And he uses us as part of his plan. We who are God's people, he uses us as part of his plan to proclaim his son, to exalt his son. Christ's exaltation is our biggest need. We need to exalt him so we can experience the blessing. The blessing is a promise. So the question is, are you suffering for righteousness' sake? Are you suffering for something that is not the result of sin? Simply an opportunity for you to understand who Christ is to you, what he went through on your behalf, and then to proclaim that to all of your world. Are you suffering for righteousness' sake? Exalt Christ and believe in the blessing and look to the blessing. Don't have fear. Look to the blessing. Don't be troubled. The blessing is yours in Christ. Is your conduct righteous? Are you living and acting for righteousness' sake? If you are, don't grow weary in well-doing. If you are not, repent. Repent and exalt Christ. I had a sense this week in prayer that there are some, I don't know how many, who feel that their lives are not significant enough to be on the playing field when it comes to giving a reason for the hope. I believe the Lord has this question for you. Did Christ die for you? Exalt him, and he will draw people. He uses every one of his people for his exaltation. He uses everyone to proclaim. Now, we as a church, I, I, I love being a part of this church. Because what I see all the time is a church that comes to the aid of those who are suffering. Those who come to the aid through prayer, through encouragement, through words and scriptures to be able to say, I thought of you, keep your head up, exalt Christ. You are doing well. Let's keep on doing it. But let's let's experience the blessing of exalting Christ. So Lord, we come to you now and we ask. Jesus, we ask that all that you are would become real in our hearts right now, that we would we would have a deliberate act right now of setting you apart, of of remembering your majesty and your greatness, your righteousness, your authority. You are the king. You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Be exalted. Be exalted in our hearts. Be exalted in our minds. Take whatever is, is robbing you of that place in our hearts. Throw it aside. We want you to be exalted. Lord, I pray for those in our midst who are suffering. Lord, I pray for a relief, but not necessarily a physical relief. Lord, I pray for a relief in their minds. I pray for a relief in their hearts. 
Lord, I pray for you to be exalted. May, they, may, may their faith grow all the more. Lord, those, who us, uh, those of, uh, among us who have been suffering with a disease, Lord, I pray for healing. Heal them. Jesus, heal them for your namesake. Heal them. And I ask that they would continue to press through the crowd of their circumstances to touch the hem of your garment. To push everything aside. Like Bartimaeus saying, son of David, have mercy on me. And when people are telling him to be quiet, he says, no, I'll do it all louder. Because that man, I want that man. Zacchaeus humbling himself, climbing up in a tree. I want to see that man. Or may we suffer with those who are suffering. Jesus, just as we know you have suffered and you identify with us and you, you give us freedom in the midst of the suffering. Jesus, we want you, we want you to be exalted.